theology, the household, uh, what, the, what the household is, why it matters. Uh, I'm going to do that for approximately 30 minutes. Uh, then we'll take a break. We'll get dessert, some bourbon. And I've invited Matt Hands from Grace City Church to share with us a bit about how, uh, kind of moving from there to then how he has worked that out in his family. We'll also ask Craig Thai to just share a little bit on the tail end of Matt's talk, um, how they've tried to work some of this stuff out in their family. And then we'll do some Q&A, and that will be the night. Sound good? Okay. Um, I want to begin with a really obvious observation um, that should be apparent to all of you. Um, and I want to talk about why this observation about this particular time is different than other times. Um, as we look around at our particular society at this particular moment in history, it should be fairly easy to recognize that things are a mess. They're just a big mess. Um, you just walk to the north side of our city, wait a few months, you can walk to the south side of the city, go over by Grace City Church right now, and you will see that society appears at one level, um, at least among some people in our society, to be collapsing. I'll watch the latest Disney movies, watch whatever movie you want to watch, and you'll get the sense that something is deeply, deeply wrong with our culture. Now, that's not unique. Um, you will find people on social media kind of raising raising hell, saying, hey, the whole world's on fire. This is a whole new season of destruction and corruption in a culture that we've never seen before. And I think that's false. Um, their sin has always existed. It's only always been prevalent in every society, every culture that's ever existed. There has always been sin. But there is something unique about this particular moment um, and the nature that sin is taking in this moment. It's not necessarily worse. It's that in the past, that sin took place within a particular given context, a framework that, um, that, that most societies on earth had. You had sinful men and sinful women living within that framework, but the framework was there. And what the gospel did is step into that existing framework in a number of societal societies, adjust it in some minimal ways, and in the most part, help people, one, to find forgiveness for their sins, and then um, submit to the law of God, submit to the word of God, trusting in the grace of God, start to live differently within that context. What's different about what's taking place today is the attack has come, or the disintegration has come, at the level of the context, not just the individuals functioning within that context. And what I'm talking about in particular is that the, the, the whole of society, every society that's ever existed, every culture that's ever existed, had within it a framework, a foundation that was built upon the household. It's built on the strength of husbands and wives and children, and that framework um, existing. And then the trouble in the past was you had a sinful wife and a sinful husband and sinful kids, um, and no calls to repentance, no, no availability of grace and forgiveness. Um, and so that sin could just run wild. The difference in our own day, um, and it's happened in various places in the past, but I, I don't know of anything historically that matches the degree to which our society has actually declared war on that entire framework. Um, and I think you can hear it in calls to burn the patriarchy or destroy the patriarchy or those kinds of things, um, where patriarchy doesn't just mean, say, abusive men leading their families. It means families being led at all. 
Um, and so there is, uh, th- there is an entire movement in our culture that, that has lost that framing in which sin, redemption, grace, repentance, and all of those things could take place and actually bring correctives to the way that society functioned. So what you have now is a loss of that context and, and, um, and therefore a loss of the context in which a lot of the things that God has called us to and made us for has been utterly lost. And so you have an entire society. I think this is why you see um, numbers of suicide skyrocketing. It's why you see numbers related to depression and despondency skyrocketing. It's why you see drug use, drug use skyrocketing. Um, because there is no framework in which for us, for, for individual human beings to then place their lives and say, this is what my life means. And here's how my life relates to other people and where I bear responsibility and their responsibility. And I can then understand, um, the, the very meaning of these relationships and the meaning of my own life. Um, instead, you've got a highly individualized, individualistic culture. Um, that idolizes self-identity, that idolizes making much of yourself, that idolizes um, you just making up whatever framework you want to define the very nature of your life. So what I want to do is two things in the next 25 minutes, um, and that is essentially to define the nature of the household. Um, what, what is it? And to do that, I'm depending heavily on a book I want to highly commend and recommend. I want to commend to all of you tonight. Uh, the Case for the Christian Family. It's by guy named Jared Longshore. We have four or five copies of it for $5 tonight, um, and we'll be ordering more. Uh, and that's, we're going to be talking about what is the household. Within a biblical framework, what is the household? And probably more importantly, how important is the household to understanding God's plan for the whole world? Um, so that's first. Step two in that 25 minutes is I'm going to be depending a lot on this book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, um, which we don't have any copies of, but we will very, very soon um, by C.R. Wiley. You can find it online um, to talk about, okay, if this is what a household is, what does a household exist for? Um, what are you supposed to do with it? Um, one of the problems in the church, or particularly in conservative Christian circles and reform circles in our world, is we've done a lot of work over the last 10 or 15 years, doing, doing a lot of work defining what the household is, doing work on the idea of covenant, the idea of headship and submission and husbands and wives, and, and even on, on the idea of raising children up in the Lord, we haven't done a whole, wor- whole lot of work on why. Um, and so I think we've lost a sense of the mission of the household, um, how the household's supposed to function in society, what husbands and wives are for, as if you're a, a, you are a man, if you're in here. Um, if, if you're a single man in here and you're looking for a wife, what should you be looking for in a wife and why? Um, it's just, uh, and, uh, and so I want to hit on some of those things. And then that's where I will stop. And then we'll see what Matt wants to do. Um, he was considering just changing his talk and talking about lesbianism tonight, but uh, <laughs> we'll see if he does that. Um, so there's the problem. Um, and the nature of Christianity, uh, particularly for um, those of us who've grown up around evangelical Christianity, is what evangelical Christianity has tended to do um, to its own detriment is accept whatever framework society is living in and then step into that and preach grace and the gospel. Now, the grace and, grace and the gospel 
Um, the cross is absolutely essential, central. I'm not I'm negating any of its centrality um, in the message of Christianity. But the problem is, is that Jesus commissioned to, the, to his disciples, commissioned to us, commissioned to what we're supposed to be up to in the world, um, was ultimately a, con- a continuation of um, the commission that was given in Genesis to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and that commission, um, as it's been adopted, adapted uh, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, is that we were to go and make disciples of the nations. Um, another way to translate is that disciple the, the, the cultures. Um, the idea is that, that you would be, you and I would be stepping into as believers in Jesus, as those who worship Jesus, who've known the grace of Jesus, um, and, and stepping into culture, stepping into relationships with neighbors, um, who, who hopefully come to believe in Jesus, who we hopefully practice hospitality with and lead them to believe and hear the gospel, to hear the gospel and to believe the gospel. They would step into those relationships. And it's not merely that they would come to believe that their sins are forgiven. They come to confess and believe that Jesus is Lord, and that if he's Lord, he then defines the nature and the purpose and the reason and the meaning of every single facet of life. And when you go back to Genesis, the very first thing that God establishes, I believe, is worship in the, in the garden. The second thing he establishes in the garden is the household, husbands and wives. And the commission that he gives to human beings in the garden, that they're to be fruitful and to multiply, to, to, um, to fill the earth and to subdue the earth, um, is given to the household. It's a really important thing to see. It's not given to Disney. It's not given to, I already forgot the name of your company, Ethios, Etios, whatever. Um, it's given to the household. So when you think about the cultivation of the earth, you see that um, as you think about the earth being filled, and it, it being, it's easier to think of it in terms of it being filled with people. That's obviously a family, family job. It's also meant to be subdued by people. It's meant to be subdued ultimately by the household. So, so I want to establish for you that the household, whatever it is, is foundational to everything else that's going to be built in any society in any culture. It's not secondary. It's not secondary to your job. It's not secondary to um, anything. Um, God establishes the church. God establishes the household. And ultimately establishes the governments of the earth, the magistrates, um, to exercise the ministry of justice in the midst of those societies. So, So as you think about your home and your family, one of the temptations in our culture is since we've lost a vision of what the family is, because we've lost a vision and understanding of how central the household is to the purposes of God, we tend to think of the household as um, the place I go to rest, the place I go to have sex with my wife, the place where I have to do the work of raising kids, because that's what you have to do, um, and that's one of the things that is the benefit of having sex. Um, like it, it's just, it's kind of an afterthought economically. It's an afterthought oftentimes in terms of mission. It's an afterthought in terms of business, in terms of actually, um, it, it actually filling the earth with the glory of God, um, subduing the earth and cultivating the earth. Um, it comes, becomes simply a means of us doing the task of being married, finding rest tomorrow for me, watching football, 
um, and, uh, and raising kids so that they can go and find a good job and make good money and hopefully have a house of their own. The household's actually much more dynamic than that as we look at it in the scriptures. And the first thing I want you to see um, is that what the household is can only be understood in covenantal terms. Um, flip over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to start. Actually, will somebody read verses 1 through 13? Oh, sorry. Verses 14 through 21. Don't read some weird translation. Okay. I don't know. It's 14 to 20. 21. To the end of the chapter. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth would the same. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power and the spirit in your being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts and faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, who grasp that our wives and our belonging to him. Now I, this love of Christ, and to know this love is surpassing knowledge, and you can be built to the measure of all the holiness of God. Now to him who is able to do it immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, According to the power that is us, to him be glory, church, and Christ Jesus throughout all generations, ever and ever. Amen. Amen. So, focusing on, I want you to notice this first. First, uh, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Um, this word here, translated "named," is it's kind of hard to culturally translate this concept. For us, um, it's a sense that we, all of our households, um, are under one household. The idea is that we have all one father. I want to read this quote. Uh, this is actually from C.R. Wiley, Household and War for the Cosmos. It says, but when it comes to the way most Christians understand the fatherhood of God, their thinking is closer to Freud's than to the Apostle Paul's. Like Freud, they tend to believe that we project our analogies upwards. To their credit, they believe someone is actually up there, Freud not. But this approach implies that any resemblance between the Heavenly Father and the human fathers is merely coincidental. There's no real connection. But for Paul, the reason we have fathers and families and households is because there is a Father in heaven, and this, as we will see, makes all the difference in the world. Um, the point of this is to say that it's households all the way down. Um, the concept of household is not some side project that you just happen to be participating in. Um, that, that from the top all the way to the bottom, uh, God's intention is to establish for himself households. Uh, the church is the household of God. That's true. Um, but in another, in another way of, of, of speaking, um, all of you who are fathers are under fathers to the great father, and he is truly our father. Um, we tend to think of it, uh, I think Wiley's insight here is great. We've tended to think that we have, we happen to look around and find ourselves in a, in a world where there are things such as fathers. And that God comes along and says, Oh, I'm kind of like a father. 
It actually works biblically in the other direction. We have fathers on earth. There are fathers. Many of you in this room are in the role and the vocation of father because God is father. It is at the very essence of who he is. Um, and therefore, you are a reflection of God the Father in your own fathering. Um, the point there is that the very foundation of everything, um, God never calls himself our manager or our CEO. Um, he doesn't command us to pray to him or to speak to him or make requests of him um, as the manager and CEO. He shows up as father because he is father. And then he calls many of us to the vocation of fathering um, as a reflection of that image in the world. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Will somebody read verses 22 all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, the king of Christ is the head of the church, his body makes himself a savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love their wives, as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might set and sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Not spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemishing. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and put fast to his wife, the two shall become one with flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that the first of Christ in the church. However, that each one of you love his wife as himself, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, they, <clears throat> children, they are married from the Lord, but this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first of man in the promise. That you may know well that you and you may live long in the land. Fathers do not provoke children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction to war. Bomb service, convey to earthly masters that fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as in Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God upon the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or one free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality. Amen. All right, I want to draw uh, two quick observations at the surface level of this text and pull us back into the culture to make an observation, and then we're going to go back and look at some of the details of this given that cultural reality um, and, and how that cultural reality changes how we read this text. Um, first, all of the language there given between husbands and wives is covenantal. Uh, one of the most significant things, I would say maybe the most significant thing that has been lost culturally is the concept of covenant. Um, and the concept that you and I are covenantal beings. Uh, we have in our culture, um, in our modern society, 
begun to see individuals as individuals um, and that we only have responsibilities that we agree to. Um, there are no responsibilities. There are no identity. There is no identity um, that is ours unless we agree to it and continue to agree to it. The Bible works in almost the exact opposite direction. Um, you are born into the world as a member of a covenant. You're born into a covenant thing called a family, household, in which in that family you have particular responsibilities, a particular vocation, things that you must do and be, whether you agree to them or not. In fact, it will just go bad for you if you don't agree to it. Um, When two people stand at an altar and they say vows and they form a covenant relationship with one another, they leave there not as... They, they, they showed up with two different last names, and they leave with one last name. When Jenny and I got married, she showed up with Dixon, um, very British, respectable British name. Um, I showed up with Brown, very noble Scottish name. Um, and there at the altar, when we turned to leave, um, I, I was no longer part of this covenant, covenantal family called the Browns over here. And Jenny, and Jenny, a member of this covenantal family called the Dixons, and we just made an agreement that we would live together and sleep together and eventually hopefully raise kids together. Um, and I had some financial tie there. We, we actually became, God created something new. Jesus speaks of marriage um, in the Gospel of Mark. He talks about what happens at the, at the altar as something that God is actually doing. It's not just two people um, acting on their own will, their own desires, and making an agreement or a contract. Um, it's actually God taking two people and forming something completely new called the Browns. And to be a Brown um, comes with its own set of responsibilities. Um, to be the husband of the Browns comes with its own vocation. To be the wife of the Browns comes with its own vocation. This is what a household is. It's a covenantal union. And so you raise up children... Um, what's something that I, something that uh, my dad would say to me? Um, your dad perhaps said it to you, and I hated it every time he said it. Uh, when I was going to baseball practice or going to basketball practice, particularly basketball practice, because I was terrible at basketball, and I knew I was going to make a mockery of the Brown name, he would remember that you are Brown. Um, remember <laughs> that you represent the Browns. Um, there is a real sense that none of us here are individuals. Um, all of us are members of covenantal bodies. And in those covenantal bodies, these things created by God, we have particular responsibilities, particular roles, um, a particular identity. And we also have particular blessings as members of those families. There's a concept that runs throughout the scriptures of an inheritance. Um, and, uh, and so if you can imagine, let's go all the way back to an agrarian society um, or a you know, you've got small villages and towns where maybe some kinds of businesses are going. All of the business, all of the economy was not driven by companies. It was driven by households. You had a household business. You raised grain and you sold it. You made wine and you sold it. You made rocking chairs and you sold them. I don't know if they had rocking chairs in first century Judea. There are other pastors here that are far more expertise. Did they? They did. Okay. And so... um I can just look right there at both of them. Uh, and so if you were in a household, 
Um, the household was not just a place where you watch Netflix. The household was not just a place where the husband and the wife had sex. It wasn't just a place where you did nurture of children. Um, you actually had a business. You had an economy that was built out of the household and out of that economy. Um, everybody had roles, responsibilities, and blessings. It was actually considered really, really bad if you didn't have a lot of kids. And because it was economically bad not to have a whole lot of kids. If you've got 100 acres out back, that 100 acres is way easier to care for. And if you care for it well enough and you grow enough grain, you can use that to buy more acres um, or to start a side business of making rocking chairs. Everybody wants to make rocking chairs. Um, And you can it's way easier to do that if you have a whole bunch of kids. And it's way easier to do that if you have a whole bunch of kids and you've done a good job of diligently training those kids in how to be how to be hardworking, um, how to how to manage um, numbers, those little I think they probably the beat things maybe at that point. Um, but the whole household was built around worship the Lord. There was a covenant between the husband and the wife, and there was an economy that was built out of that household. And children were raised up to work hard, and there was an incentive for them to work hard. Why? Because the harder they worked, and the more wealth that grew, the more um, the more that could be generated, the more um, uh, the more wealth that could be generated by that household, the more that that child, when they got their inheritance, would inherit. So there was a direct correlation to having lots and lots of kids. And everything was held together by this concept of covenant. You belong to one another. God, by creating this thing, has given you as a husband responsibilities. God, by creating this thing called the household for the wives, has given them responsibilities. And when you begin to see that kind of framework for how the economy worked in the first century, suddenly when you come to texts like Ephesians 5, where it talks about wives submitting to their husband, when you go back to a text like Proverbs 31, where you see this picture of a woman who's buying and selling fields, um, who, who's dealing with, um, with uh, buying the right fabric, keeping, keeping everything working in the household, suddenly you begin to see the context in which all of that can be placed. Now, the problem in our culture, remember problems, but one of them is, is the household has been divorced from the economy. So that you go to your job and you work 50 hours and you earn a wage. In other words, you sell your time to a company. That time, that company pays you for your time. Then you leave with that money, not owning your labor, but owning the money that they paid you for your labor. And you take it home and you hopefully pay for your house and you go back home where no real work is being done. You eat there, you sleep there. Maybe raise your kids there. And all of that involves some level of work. But, but your time isn't being invested there economically um, to actually produce fruitfulness in the world. Now, all of a sudden, you start talking to women, even women who haven't been bit by kind of the feminist bug, and you go to Ephesians 5, and you start talking about wives submit to your husbands, and it is completely different, Right? Do you see how it's different? And so what, what's happened in a lot of our circles is um, because of the Industrial Revolution, we'll go through all of Western economic history, but w- what's happened particularly in conservative Christian circles 
who really, really look at Ephesians 5 and say, this is true. Look at Titus 2 and say, wives should, be, should have an orientation towards the home. It's in the Bible. Believe that's in the Bible. We believe that's true. Believe that's God's design. That's what God wants us to do. In our society, the economic, the economic engine for productivity is no longer the household. It's the company. It's Main Street. It's the factory floor. But we really believe the Bible. We really believe Titus 2. We really believe Ephesians 5. So what do we do? Husbands go off to work to generate income, to generate the economy, to subdue the earth, to work the earth, to cause the earth to be fruitful. Um, and wives stay at home and they're bored because the house is a place to be comfortable. The house is at best, oftentimes, in our, in, in our culture, a place to rest, a place to lay on the couch, a place to sleep. And then, um, another book I'll recommend, uh, you know, women read this book. I would strongly recommend our men read this book. It's from Rebecca Merkel. It's fantastic. Walks all the way through this. Yeah. They did a documentary on it. Um, she talks about now you add to that element, which I just described, which you can all feel the tension there, right? Now start making it really, really easy to be at home. Invent a thing called a vacuum. Invent dishwashers. Invent sewing machines. Invent such that even the, the little bit of, of, of fruitful activity, the, the fruitful activity that was left in the home now becomes something that most people can do in about 30 minutes a day. You do that, and suddenly what you have in a household is the engine for productivity, for fruitfulness, is no longer the home. Also add in there public school. So get your kids out of the home. The kids are gone. The husband's off doing real work to really subdue the earth and generate income, economic fruitfulness. The wife is left with, well, she's supposed to be oriented towards the home. And home is primarily now, as we understand it, a place of rest, relaxation, a place of leisure. And then come the feminists. <laughs> Why do you think they showed up? Because they recognized a very real problem. A very real problem. But the problem is not the dynamic, as they said, between men and women, between husbands leading their families and wives submitting to their husbands. The problem is that the, 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 the definition and the purpose and the mission of this covenantal thing created by God to be the foundation stone on which all of society is built, all societies are built, has been gutted of usefulness. It's just become a place of comfort and leisure and rest. Covenant relationships are always supposed to produce fruit. They're supposed to do things. They're supposed to conquer things. They're supposed to overcome things. They're supposed to get, they're supposed to generate wealth. And, and one of the most devastating things that's taken place in the last 200 years in our society, of which I would say almost every single societal problem sexually, all the gender confusion, the sexual problems, all of the despondency, all of it can be tethered back to the gutting of the household as the primary engine driving society. I think feminism is wicked. It's, I think it's satanic. But it identified a real problem. And it gave a satanic answer. 
an answer that was in rebellion against the word of God. Um, and and so, so, so as we look at the world, as we look at history, as we look at the problems in our society, I think we're far too quick to say the root of the problem is feminism. The root of our sexual confusion is feminism. The root of our um, gender confusion, the root of all of these things is feminism. Feminism is a problem, and you have to address feminism. The bigger problem is that we left a society where the household lost its meaning, where husbands no longer knew how to lead their families in, in, the, in the way that God had actually designed families to be led, households to be led. And we left women at home with nothing to do. And then we insisted they stay home and have nothing to do. This isn't God's design. And I will affirm every single word about the relationship between husbands and wives in this, in, in this Bible, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. All of that. Come on. The whole thing. I'm, I'm not fighting against, like the feminists are, wives submit to your own husbands as the Lord. I'm saying that the context that that is written for and that we have to somehow figure out how to reclaim in a very complex society, in a very complex economy, was not why the, the meaning of that and the meaning of Titus 2 was not wives stay home and do nothing while your husband goes off to work. The context of that was, hey, here's this thing, this amazing covenantal thing created by God on your wedding day called a household. And it's an engine, and it's supposed to be fruitful. And everybody has a job. For this thing to run and work and do what it's supposed to do, everybody has to work together for this. And so what God does is come in Ephesians 5 and establish a hierarchy within that engine in which everybody is working for that thing to be fruitful and to generate life and to generate wealth, to generate discipleship, and to generate life. Proverbs 31 now makes sense. Your wife is there not to simply do whatever you say and make sure you have a good meal when you go home. Although, that's great. She's also there to buy fields as your under-manager, as your executive director. I don't know if that works in your company, but the idea is that, that, there, is, that there is a head of the household and the household is doing stuff. It's building stuff. It's creating wealth. It's creating children. It's creating children who grow up and, and, are, and are wise to how you work in the world. This reframes education. So the education is not simply um, how do you teach your kids arithmetic. It's, no, how do you raise them up in and through the household that they can be fruitful, that they can actually do the jobs, the responsibilities they've been given in your household? Which means, single guys, you should not be looking for a wife who just likes Ephesians 5 and wants you to go off to work so that she can sit at home all day. You should be looking for a wife, a woman who is brilliant, hardworking, and will multiply the fruitfulness that you're already trying to generate with your life. You should not want to marry a dumb, lazy woman. You should want to marry an intelligent, hardworking, 
brilliant woman, a woman who's really good at stuff that you're not good at. Who can take your gifts and your leadership and maximize it and cause it to flourish. I'm out of time. The mission of the household, I would just define as succinctly as I can, is fruitfulness. And not fruitfulness just in kind of a Christian-y way, like, we want to see people come to know Jesus. Yes, we want to see people come to know Jesus. I think that means, at the very least, it means hospitality in your husband. But it also means fruitfulness economically. Um, and I think that's where we need a lot more creative energy. And I don't have any answers for you. And that's why I invited these two guys to speak, because they have some answers for us. Um, but, th- but not necessarily the answer. They have us, they've, in both of their marriages, have, have been a, a picture to me, to some degree, from a father, um, of what does it look like for a husband and wife and children to all be aiming at the same thing, um, and, and for the household to actually become a unit that's actually building things um, and producing things in society, um, whether that's Christian mission, whether that's economically, all of those things. Um, I, I don't want to tell Matt's story for him. Um, his wife, Marty, is terrifying. Um, on, uh, she's on our, she's on the school board for ACA. And as she talks about business deals, as she, she works and they, and they have a lot of work going on in their home, um, around real estate. Um, Matt's like a pretty nice guy. And I think Marty's a pretty nice woman. And I would not want to negotiate with her, um, around a lease. <laughs> That would not be like the thing I want to do. Um, their, their gifts fit and are working together to build something. The difficulty for us, some of you own your own businesses, Justin's here, you own your own business. So, so there's more freedom and more flexibility in that. For a lot of us, we work for somebody else. We sell our time to somebody else. Um, and, and so I think there's some work that's needed to figure out, hey, how do we do this with the household and see the household this way? When I still have to work in what honestly resembles a slave relationship um, in the first century, I'm having to sell my time to earn a paycheck. Um, so, so I think there's some work when most people, frankly, are going to have to live and work and earn a living in our city in that kind of situation. How do we begin to reclaim the centrality and the fruitfulness of the household as we go forward? And so that's where I want to hand things off to them, um, to Matt, um, and then I've asked uh, that's Craig to chime in. Um, that's where we're going to go next. Is how do we reclaim that vision, that mission practically for the household? Um, so right now we have desserts in the back. We have whiskey over here. Uh, Amazing food. Justin, great job. I saw your gospel community groups closest to my house. So I'm trying to come over and avail myself of that. Um, yeah, Brian asked me to share um, some of what, my wife and I do practically. And I thought before I get to that, I would share why we do that. I think actually why, knowing why and what scriptures we have found and understood a particular way is going to be more practical than just hearing like, this is what this other couple does. Um, Because I don't want what we do to either encourage you to do exactly that or to discourage you if you feel like you can't do exactly that. Um, So starting off... um, I had the privilege of going to Christian school, grew up in a Christian home. Um, and maybe some of you have heard something similar where uh, you ever heard the thing from like the Garden of Eden that they're like, 
Adam and Eve only had one rule to obey and they broke it. Has anybody ever heard that? Well, it's a complete lie, right? Um, it's, like, it's just simply not true. Um, because the very first command that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 28, and Cry mentioned this, and I'll quote it from my notes. I'm not just paraphrasing. Um, so God just made man on the sixth day. It says, and God blessed them, the first man and the first woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So long before we get to chapter two, and he says, okay, you can eat anything you want of the garden except the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't touch that fruit. Long before that, they have this positive sweeping set of commands that is often called, you may have heard this term, like the cultural mandate or the creative mandate. Um, and just to kind of define our terms here, this idea of being fruitful and multiplying, uh, as Brian said, there's a, there's a sexual element to that of like literally bear children and bear fruit with your bodies um, to bear more fruit and more generations. Uh, but it's significantly more than that because these words mean to, to flourish, to produce abundance. Literally, it's a command to thrive. Subdue. When he says, subdue the earth and have dominion over everything else, the idea of subdue is to bring something under control. It is to harness. And, uh, you know, whether you're thinking of like the, the minerals and the gases in our earth, or maybe like literal animals that need to be harnessed in order for them to be more productive. Like I have family that has um, golden retrievers that are completely out of control, that the only thing they know how to do is to hump my littlest child. Um, I have a friend who's a police officer and she has a golden retriever and it is a, like a drug sniffing and bomb sniffing dog because it, it, something has been harnessed there. It's been brought under control and trained. And that's the idea of not abusing the earth and exploiting the earth, but even caring for things in a way where they can achieve their full potential by being harnessed. Um, then just the idea of dominion, have dominion over everything is this idea of, you know, the little, little L lordship that you have a stewardship of everything. So you're actively leading and governing and managing the earth. And so that's all in chapter one. That's the very first, by the way, it's the first words that God's, that, that, that is recorded in scripture that God speaks to humanity. The very first words that God speaks to humanity are the cultural mandate, um, then in chapter 2, verse 15, we see, it says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the idea of work there is to cultivate, to serve, but there's a nuance to this word in the Hebrew as an act of worship. So you're not merely working, you're not merely cultivating, but you're doing something because you have a Godward direction with your work that is seeking to glorify him. Um, and the idea of keeping something is to exercise great care. It's a kind of a shepherding word um, to observe, to tend, to care for. Um, so I paraphrase this. It's got, like God saying, take these raw materials and do something meaningful with it. So, so build and create and think about um, gardens and cities and culture and civilizations that reflect my character, unfold the potential because really, when they're brought into creation, all they have is all this raw earth and materials and endless potential. And God says, very generally, 
basically have at it. So, you know, you've heard this summarized as cultivate, create, and care for. Um, and I'll pause like Brian did and just remind you, who is God saying this to? Or whose responsibility is it to fulfill this mandate? See, governments have not even been thought of yet. This is not the government's responsibility. Um, this is not corporate America or any international corporation that's publicly traded or anything. There's, there's no corporation yet. This isn't even the church's responsibility. The church doesn't exist yet, per se. And you, you know what I mean when I say that. Um, the creation mandate is given to a husband and wife. Be fruitful and multiply. Build a family. Build a household. And you are the, you know, as Brian said, the engine of fruitfulness within any culture is this base unit of the family. So kind of my thesis that we then kind of built our lives, our marriage, our family on is going back to there are very few things we actually know with great certainty before the fall or the curse, before sin entered the world and kind of messed up everything. And this is one of them. We know that God is articulating a perfect design for the family to be this engine of productivity and fruitfulness of the creative mandate. And so I put it this way, culture and civilization were intended to flourish through the thoughtful dominion of God-centered families and households. Okay. And that's very often not how we think of the family and household. Uh, Brian already mentioned how we kind of, even in Christian circles, trim that definition down to what a Christian family looks like. And we're not thinking big picture, like pre-fall of is, is culture and civilization, is it thriving to the degree that it can be in a broken, fallen world and a broken, fallen culture? Is it flourishing because of the thoughtful dominion of people that have directed their families' intent toward God? Um, well, as I said, like a lot of sin happened. And there were certainly some things, I think, pre-fall that did not carry over. Um, and you could ask, like, so what, what impact did sin have on this mandate to, like, go be fruitful and multiply? And I think it's very interesting. Let's run through a handful of these. Genesis 9, verse 1, God says to Noah, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you may know this is after the washing of the earth. There's kind of a second creation happening. You get to start over with raw materials. Everything else has kind of been wiped clean. And it, it basically restates the same mandate to a very broken Noah and his sons. Um, Genesis 17, verse 6, to Abram or Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Genesis 35, 11, to Jacob, who's later called Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Uh, Leviticus 26, 9, to all the people of Israel, he says, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. Um, I love this Psalm 128, one through four. It's kind of like to whomever. It just says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And so we know, at least as late as the Psalms around the era of King David, 
the Lord seems to be continuing this mandate and this simultaneous promise of fruitfulness. I want to work through, um, as Brian said, this covenant family and covenant families having children and grandchildren and offspring and passing this blessing, but also this mandate along, be fruitful. Don't just settle into like this middling marriage defined by your culture, but strive to be fruitful and multiply in various ways. Well, I think one one that's really interesting is that um, it's not just at some point that sin has entered the picture and it hasn't completely messed up God's plan to work through us in this way, um, but God's people end up so rebellious that they end up in Babylonian exile. And and this is a fascinating text that's always misused by church planters. You know, they get up and they're giving their their fundraising talk and they're like, this is what we're going to do. And then none of, like, I'll read this and you'll see, like, none of them are doing this to build their church. Um, but basically there are false prophets coming to the people and they're saying, hey, you're just going to be in and out of Babylon. So don't, don't sweat it. Don't, don't settle in there. God's going to bring you right back out. And Jeremiah comes along and says, no, that is not the word of the Lord. You're actually going to be there for a very long time. And he says this, Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7, he says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So I guess everybody considers church planning as like, I'm going into exile in Denver, and uh, I, should, I should do something like this. Um, the idea is they're literally going into exile. They're slaves. They're deported. And God says, multiply your family, the covenant family. Build bigger and stronger households. And then it almost sounds like what? This, this like build houses and plant gardens and eat the produce and multiply. And it sounds like a restatement of the cultural mandate. Cultivate, create, care for, build, plant, be fruitful and multiply. Do gender, generative work, even on behalf of a pagan culture and a pagan city where you find yourself. Build families through marriage and procreation. And so I come to this, so what? And this is kind of where we, we land. It, it's kind of like, if this is God's original, perfect creative design before sin entered the world, and this pattern is repeated throughout redemptive history, then this is something that we can't just duck out of or delegate. And I think the church does sometimes a horrible disservice of just saying, well, we, you know, we pay our taxes, so it's the government's job to do this, or it's the public school's job, or even the Christian school, the private school's job to do this. Um, the reality is, biblically, men, it is not someone else's job to train and apprentice our kids to glorify and follow Jesus. It's nobody else's job, like it is our job. It's, it's our job, biblically. Um, but it's also not someone else's job to leave certainly a Jesus-shaped imprint on our churches, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our schools. It's our responsibility. 
Um, so let me, let me just run through. I came from a very traditional home. Um, my wife came from a divided home. Um, her parents separated when she was a kid. But I want to share with you, and, and Brian kind of ran down this path, so I'll just go quickly over like kind of what a traditional family looks like uh, versus what a progressive marriage looks like versus what I think a little bit more biblical picture. And then I'll just illustrate this quickly about some things that we do. So in, in kind of a traditional marriage, as Brian mentioned, very often, typically what happens is the husband has a career outside the home. So he is, he's going out, he's the breadwinner, um, he's earning to come home to support his wife and kids financially. While his wife is staying home and raising kids, and as Brian mentioned, something that has come along um, that's been a negative effect of all these labor-saving devices, plus like television, is that that can be a, a, a quick and easy thing that then you have someone who's just bored and like watching TV, playing video games, like getting involved in things that bored people do. Um, there was kind of a traditional division of labor. It's like, you know, who cuts the grass, who does the yard work, who's outside the home. Obviously, that's the husband who cooks and cleans and raises kids. Obviously, that's the wife. Um, and the way I, way I describe that is it's kind of a, it's kind of a cheap way of doing complementarianism. Um, and I'm sure most of you know that term, but like even from when God created men and women different and brought them together, there was supposed to be a complementarity of their roles and of the, the gender itself. Um, Eve was created to be Adam's counterpoint, but also his opposite. And I think a danger of, well, there are many, but I'm, I'm on very short time. Um, I think of the traditional marriage and family as like siloed, but complementary. So the man's living in his silo and he's like, look, my role is kind of to produce money to support the kids so they can do their things. And my wife is actually raising them and she's dependent on him to bring the money home to do that. Okay. And, and a household goal in a traditional culture is just simply you produce the next generation of people who are knowing and performing their roles at an adequate level where they reflect well on the Brown family name or whatever your family name is. It's like, oh, she, she turned out all right. Uh, she's going to make a good wife. Um, you know, bear children, train them at home, all that stuff. That's, that's good. Um, so seeing that, whether it's a liberalism or a progressivism and saying like, that's not the track we want to go down in a progressive family you know, both the husband and the wife have careers outside the home. And then both of them come home and just kind of figure out like household responsibilities, training kids. And a lot of this has been outsourced to like a nanny when the kids are very young. And then typically the public school, or if you've got more money, maybe the private school. And what you have in a progressive home is almost like interchangeable roles um, like teamwork, but, but they're interchangeable. There's this egalitarianism of like, we're equal. Brian mentioned this and kind of like the husband's like, well, I just support your dreams, whatever those are. And you kind of support my dreams, whatever those are. And a household goal is basically just, it just produce like the next generation of expressive individualists who succeed at whatever it is that they want to succeed at. And success is what they say success is. So what they personally care about. Um, I think this, 
I think this biblical role, if we go all the way back to the creative mandate for the first husband, the first wife, looks more like a husband and a wife laboring both inside and outside the home in different ways. And I'm speaking in like very general terms because like the scripture doesn't paint exactly what that looks like. It is funny that even in traditional circles, like I came from, which like most women were not, you weren't supposed to work outside the home if you're a woman, unless, you know, the exceptions were you could do Christian school work or you could work for the church or you could work in missions, but you couldn't work in business and these other things. Um, I don't, I don't think that aligns with then the same pastor turning around preaching on Proverbs 31 and conveniently skipping over the fact that she's like literally out buying a field first thing in the morning and doing some of this creative mandate kind of stuff. Um, I still think there's a complementarity of, of a couple looking at each other's respective gifts and abilities and history and expertise and experience and a husband leading his wife and serving his wife and, and a wife coming alongside. And so what that looks like in our marriage is like I, when, I, when my wife and I met, like I was already a full-time pastor and she comes alongside with these incredible, like she's not just terrifying or whatever Brian said, like has really incredible gifts of hospitality. And so it was like, you know, our home is always going to be open. And in a couple opportunities that we've had to like design or redesign a home, it was intentionally built to be a place of hospitality for other people and to have a place where like very often um, others come and live with us because they don't have a place to stay. And her gifts of hospitality and just thinking people will always come over and people will always be welcome to stay with us and people will always be part of this bigger household that we have. And our kids fit into that. Like literally every night when we pick up our kids from school, they're like, who's coming over tonight? Our two boys, eight and 10. They're like, who's coming over tonight? Because they just anticipate that our lives are bigger than just coming home you know, turning on the TV or reading a book or, or having a, that place of comfort that's just like, this is just our place so that we can rest and recover to go do the harried life that our culture tells us to live again tomorrow. Um, so that's one way we do this. Um, that's my pastoral work. So Brian mentioned my wife is in real estate um, and uh, she moved here to get away from the rat race of Los Angeles real estate. That's how we met here in Denver. Um, but she buys apartments and so she'll buy like C-class apartments. Um, so not, not don't think like the brand new place with the lazy river and, and all that, but like, uh, but also not a slumlord place, but she'll buy like C-class apartments, remodel it and fix it up to be like B-class apartments. Um, but then basically her whole model is to build um, just workforce housing. So it's, it's housing that two people on minimum wage can afford to live in, which is like, that's one of the biggest shortages in our city. You have like all the high end stuff and then you have income qualified stuff. And there's this big gap in the middle of just like two people, husband and wife or roommates that are working minimum wage or barely above that. And that's what she does. And um, she does very, very well at that. Um, she employs a lot of other people and they do very well by her. Um, but the idea is like, she's thinking, how can I use my education? How can I use my experience to glorify God, but also provide for the common good 
enable other people to flourish in their life and remain in the place where they are so that their relationships are not uprooted and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and our kids go over and we make them like assemble patio furniture and they plant flowers and they rake leaves and they do different things to earn their allowance. Um, now, as she's continued to, she'll like leverage other people's money to buy these apartments and uh, she'll give the kids a small percent of like basically, I mean, they know it, but they don't care yet, but they have a small percent of ownership in these properties. And so it's teaching them about investment and you, you work for this because we work for this. And there's an alignment of our family doing that together. Um, I don't remember if you, if you mentioned asterisk, but um, where our church meets is like a mile away um, at the corner of Broadway, um, Park Avenue and Arapahoe. And, um, you know, me being a pastor, her being in real estate, uh, I was like, and our church can never afford a building. Just like, it's ridiculous. Like if you want to be in an urban area and have an impact for the gospel, all these big, beautiful old buildings are mostly sitting empty or almost empty. And they would cost like millions and millions and millions of dollars to buy and to renovate. And uh, we had looked for a number of years she used her real estate expertise to put together a couple of deals that fell through. But eventually we bought this uh, 1923. It's the U.S. post office garage. So all the postmen would go to the garage first thing in the morning, says 1923. They'd pick up their car. They'd drive a couple blocks over to Champa to the post office and pick up their mail and go do their route, come back at the end of the day and leave their vehicle to be worked on. Um, and it was a derelict building. It was um, pretty much abandoned when we bought it. And part of this vision is like, how do we, how do we with physical spaces kind of give people a picture of the gospel? Because God doesn't come in and just like scrape and, and just be like, it, everything's gone. There's nothing here recognizable. There's a continuity. When, when, when God moves in and his spirit moves in, there's a continuity between like, I knew this person before. You don't look that different, right? You're the same person, but you have this whole new nature and this renewal and uh, we just love partnering together to to do things like that. Um, our church is between uh, the Denver Rescue Mission and St. Francis and Samaritan House and Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. So it's kind of like ground zero. It's it's skid row right now. Um, but our kids, like, we'll go out, pick up trash, plant flowers, stuff like that. And they've learned that, like, if you're driving along there, you know, you don't have to say, I, yeah, I noticed that. But hopefully you notice next time. That when you drive by, like there's this one half block that's an oasis. It, it looks different than everything else around it. And we're trying to say something to the neighborhood of like, God has claimed this. Uh, we're not just we're not just like rolling over and just saying, oh, the city's like gone to pot and like just literally derelict and drugs and everything everywhere. Um, the the little park across the street from our church is now an urban garden. Um, those who have been in Denver for a long time may know it used to be called the Devil's Triangle because that's where the center of um, well, was the crack cocaine trade back then. Um, now it's meth and fentanyl. Um, but we put, a, we put a big lighted sign on the side of our building. Um, and Craig, can you, you're, you're going to come up here in a minute. Can you show people your tattoo? The key row um, so that the key row on his arm is an asterisk. And uh, it's the earliest, basically the earliest Christian symbol. 
Um, it stands for Jesus Christos. Um, and that's on the side of our building, shining light over the devil's triangle. And there are a lot of little things like that as we talk to people about. It's just literally like we're, we're not giving up. We're not just having a marriage. It was just like, I don't know. What did you do today? What did I do today? Like, let's have this thing of convenience. But, but more like, like this, is, this is King Jesus' world. And he wants us to put a stake in it and say, we will work for your glory as a family, as a household. We will invest together as a family, as a household. And like, I mean, you used like fighting words in the covenant, like take back part of what belongs to God and in Jesus' name. And um, so now, now we're on um, the ballpark district board. Um, so we have opportunities to, it's, it's investing in businesses, it's investing in lighting and security, um, safety measures, trash pickup. Um, the neighborhood is turning. It'll just, it'll just take time. But I truly believe like the ballpark district, you know, three, five, 10 years from now will be a destination, um, not just for Denver, but for like national, um, because there's a lot of investment going on in that neighborhood. Um, and a lot of it happening in Jesus name. Um, I want to say like, if you're single and I know Brian mentioned some things are like, look for a strong wife, a wise wife. And I certainly agree. Um, people are like, you teach complementarianism because your wife just did it. And Marty's like, have they ever met me? Uh, um, cause she's, she's a very strong and very intelligent woman, very capable. Um, but I would say you, you also don't have to go into a relationship like, Oh, who's the woman who's going to do this for me? That's, I think that's a very foolish thing. I think you, you go find someone who is passionate about Jesus Christ and loves his church and is a hard worker. Um, because I'll say it took, it took years and years for Marty and I to start to figure out how some of our gifts complement each other. And I think it's crazy to just be like holding off on marriage. Cause you're like, I haven't found a woman who can do that. And I'm waiting for that. Um, each of your stories will look different and you will take back a part of God's culture that is a little different from someone else. And that's an important differentiation that we share. Um, so just question-wise, I would say, um, what, what outcomes are you seeking to achieve with your family? You ever think about that? And I know a lot of dads are just like, what? Like, we're just going day-to-day. -day. And it's like, no, 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 stop. Like, what outcomes are you seeking to achieve with your wife and your kids and together as a family? Like, how do you define success? And I know a lot of families don't even, the Christian families don't even think about, like, I don't, I don't know, I guess honoring God. Well, what does that mean? So think about outcomes that you want to achieve. Like let God design a life that looks like that. Um, think about aspects of fruitfulness or flourishing. Um, like is my family flourishing spiritually? Are they fruitful spiritually? That's most important to us. Um, our kids miss hockey every Sunday. Um, last Sunday, one of the teammates' moms called Sunday morning and she was like, I know you guys are going to church, so we would be happy to pick up Micah for the tournament. And Marty was just like, oh, you like, and not, not in a demeaning way, but just like, oh, but you don't understand. That's very kind, but you don't understand. Like, this is what we do. Um, we go to church together as a family and it's more important than hockey. So spiritual fruitfulness, um, educational fruitfulness, you know, we're investing in our own kids' education, not just outsourcing that. 
um, the economic, um, financial fruitfulness is all part of what God cares about, social fruitfulness. Um, I encourage each of you, whether you're married or not, to kind of like with this cultural mandate, look around you and identify just areas of brokenness that stand out to you. And um, I tell people this in church all the time, like you see a brokenness that other people don't see. And maybe that's because God wants you to do something about it. Instead of getting frustrated, like why doesn't the church have a ministry for this? Maybe the reason that you're seeing is because God's wired you in your personality and your emotions and your giftedness to see that and to use those gifts and together with a family, with a household say, okay, what experiences do we have that might address that brokenness? And then thinking about your work, um, whether you have a career at this point or whether work is just like work around the house, work around your school, we all work. And what can you steward through your work? Um, because God, uh, I'm, I am passionate about this. We often teach this in a faith and work context, but it's because it's, it comes back to the family unit. It's not just go off and work for fruitfulness. It's like, let's together as family units be striving for some of this fruitfulness together. Uh, so that's a little bit of snapshot of what it looks like for us. And uh, I think you're up, Craig. Is that right? Is um, Craig still up here? We'll, we'll have a Q&A after this. Wrestling with stuff, whatever you want to talk about, um, regarding this stuff. I, the other thing, he, he said something just a second ago that stuck out to me that I, I think is really, really important. Um, we live in a culture that's constantly looking for quick fixes. What's the, what's the switch we can flip? What's the, um, like, I, I would challenge all of us to think in terms of generations. Like, one of the most frustrating things in, in the Bible is how patient God is. Um, we think, well, God could just fix stuff. Well, his plan for fixing stuff is thousands of years of faithfulness. Um, and, uh, and, and so, like, one of the things that Jenny and I talked about early on was how do we, you can want to pray, is a, one of our goals for our family is that our kids would step into life with more wealth, with deeper and abiding love of Jesus and what faithfulness to Jesus and obedience to Jesus looks like with like, in other words, we wanted them to stand on our shoulders. Um, and one of the goals of our life was, hey, we want them to have marriages that don't have to work through some of the stuff we had to work through. We want them to have a better understanding, a holistic worldview that we didn't necessarily have, that we had to kind of figure out later in life. We want them that to, to, to have, we want to, we want to live in such a way that when we die, like they're, they're stepping into, the leverage that wealth provides to do good um, that we didn't, we more than what we had. Um, and, and so even thinking about um, not thinking, how do I set my kids up perfect or how do I get our family perfect or how do we fix our neighborhood perfectly? Like the homeless problem um, in our city is not going to go away because we figure out the right government program or the right whatever program. And it's going to go away in 12 months. It's going to take <laughs> it's going to take generations. Um, and so if you're thinking culturally and then all the way down to the household, um, constantly like the, the framework should not be what's the ideal and how do I get there? Um, the picture should be how do, how do I do better in the next generation? How does the next generation go farther than we did um, as we go on? So I've asked Craig to talk. He's pastor of Christ Church. Um, their church, uh, they're now candidate for the denomination.
Um, we'll try to have Denver churches take over CRC, or at least Western U.S. in, in CRC. Um, Craig is, I've described him as the most interesting man alive. Um, and so I've asked him to share a little bit of like practically what have they done. And I will just hear him. Thanks for Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Oh, so much better. I'll keep this super short, two or three hours. Um, <laughs> I didn't actually prep anything because I wanted to hear what Brian had to say, what Matt had to say, and not try to duplicate um, and try to be respectful of your time. I know it's a late night. So Brian said, my name's Craig Thai. I pastor Christ Church, and I did not grow up in a traditional family. I didn't even grow up in a Christian family. I grew up to unbelieving parents. I spent a little bit of time in the Episcopal Church, and I spent a majority of my adult life as an Orthodox Jew. And now here I am. And so um, bacon is fantastic, and it's good to be back. But um, so both my wife, Kristen, and I have a story from before we were Christians. We were married to other people before we were Christians. We, were, uh, we lived in sin before we were Christians. And by God's grace, he brought us together. And then we came to faith and grew in faith together. And so I didn't grow up with kind of any of the background of people who grew up in a traditional Christian home. I, I didn't have any examples of what it looked like to live in a traditional Christian home. I had absolutely no idea. I had a really skewed view of what I thought conservative Christians were all about. And so our path, uh, thank the Lord, brought us to a pivot point in December of 2019. I was a professional pilot. I was um, running a flight department um, for a big family of very well-known billionaires, and I was flying all around the world, and I was miserable. I was making a lot of money. I had a super cool job, but I couldn't really figure it out. I knew Jesus. I'd gone to seminary. I, I have a beautiful wife, and I have five incredible children, and we had all of the makings and the markers for like what would look like kind of pretty textbook and, and perfect. Like what, what does the ideal Christian life look like? And thank the good Lord for 2019 for me near Antarctica. I was on a trip near Antarctica and thank the good Lord for COVID Stan and all the things that took place there. It's a great resource, a reset in our family. And I called my wife from the very bottom of the, of the planet in a place called Ushuaia. It's as far South on the planet as you can go without falling off and going to South America. The earth is not flat. It's more like an egg and it's oblong. Um, <laughs> and I called her and I said, I don't think I'm supposed to do this anymore. And she said, quit your job. I said, one cannot just quit their high paying job. And she said, quit your job. We, we have other streams of income. We've been industrious and you don't have to do this. And I said, but yeah, but, but, you, but you don't understand. She said, just, just quit your job. I said, cool, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to come home and apply for United Airlines. I'll go fly for United. She's like, you are an absolute idiot. You know that? And, and I think, Matt, I appreciate what you said about, about Marty. Like, I think strong men don't want to marry pushover women. Strong men want to marry strong, smart women. That doesn't change the, the, what Ephesians says. We write in Ephesians, right? It doesn't change order and it doesn't change uh, patriarchy. We want smart, we don't want pushover women that we did get rid of our dishwasher. <laughs> it died like a year ago. We haven't replaced it. I would actually recommend to all of you to get rid of your dishwasher. It's pretty fantastic. So I came home and I quit my job. And I was terrified because all of my identity had been wrapped up in work. All of it. And, and, I, and, and I think if I have one thing to send, because my, my focus is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be some of the practical things that Chris and I do in our household and how our household has changed in the last four years when we started really leaning in and living for all of Christ, for all of life. But I, I was tied to my job, right? Like, well, that's where my health insurance is and that's where my, my savings is and that's where my 
my retirement is. And that's where the paycheck comes in. It comes every two weeks. And it's the same amount of money every two weeks. And the bonus check comes in March. And I kind of know it's going to be about this amount of money. And I built a life around being a slave by selling my time to somebody else because I believed a lie that I couldn't do it myself, even though I own businesses on the side. So Kristen said, quit your job. And then I said, well, then do what? And she said, trust God. And, and I'm going to read this. I'll read this at the beginning and read this at the end. But I love Proverbs so, so much. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. It was interesting to me when I left Orthodox Judaism and I came to faith, I was really surprised to show up at churches where people didn't live their faith out through their fingertips all the time. It was like this activity that people went and did on Sundays. Oh, I'm a Christian. It's cool, but you should see my church. It's got a fog machine, rock and roll. It's really neat. I couldn't, I, I, there was this like cognitive disconnect. I didn't understand how their faith didn't impact all of life. But I believed the lie. And then I ended up in churches where the pastors believed the lie that, that you can't educate your children. You can't work for yourself. You actually need to be dependent on somebody else, which is big daddy governance or big daddy employer. And you remember, I worked for Boeing for a long time. You're a member of the Boeing family. Oh, I remember the Boeing family. That's pretty cool. I got a jacket. I'm not sure they throw a pretty good Christmas party. Maybe there's a picnic. We used to do a picnic. But I'm not, Boeing's not my family. That's the most insane, absurd thing that I had ever said. And I, I believed it because I believed the lie. I believed that my security wasn't what I did. And it impacted my household because my priority was I'm going to make a lot of money because I'm a provider. That allows my wife to stay home. She actually still worked at the time. Not that she doesn't work now. She works harder now. Mind you, we didn't have a dishwasher. Never mind. Uh, to my poor children's dismay. But the funny thing about the kids is that a couple of my kids are here now. They don't know this yet, but in like 15 years when they have a family and a house and maybe a dishwasher, they're going to understand why there's an importance of teaching your kids to be able to wash their own dishes and to be able to wash other people's dirty dishes that are in the sink because then you get to build into them the, to, to destroy this idea of that's not my job. And so what happened to us in 2020, this pivot moment was, wait a second, I don't have to be a slave to anybody but Jesus Christ. Who's my real boss? Who, who am I responsible to? And, and what are the implications for that in our family? And, and I think what I want to share with you is if you're not quite there yet, if you haven't figured out like all of Christ for all of life in your family, it's okay because the path is ahead of you. God has laid it out. The wisdom exists for you to do it, but you have to trust. And, and trusting doesn't mean going recklessly. Don't just like, ah, I quit my job. Lord, give me money. <laughs> but you all have skills and, and you have gifts and you have abilities to where you can provide, to, to, to build economies and, and to be able to do things that support the household. And what shifted for me was, was, was work. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on a PhD right now and I'm doing it on the Dominion mandate because Matt did a great job talking about this. The call to work was given before the fall. That's why we all, like, what's the first question any guy asks each other? What do you do? And then what do you do? Oh, man, I do this. And we become really defined by what I do, right? Oh, I'm a janitor. I'm a carpenter. I'm a pilot. I'm a doctor. I'm whatever. But what we should be asking is who do you serve? Because that really defines how you lead in your family. And, and the thing that sticks out to me that I want you to ask yourself, and I'll give a little bit of practical is, what is the foundation of your home? So Matthew and Matthew talked about the house that's built on sand. 
and the house that's built on a rock. The house that's built on a strong foundation, a firm foundation, the one that, that can take the wind and it can take the storm and it can take the trouble, right? That's the foundation, but that foundation has to be Jesus Christ. And you, your wife, and your family have to all be in the same foundation. And I think where it becomes hard is if you didn't grow up in this or you don't have family that supports this or you have family that maybe like Googled people that are, you know, we all might kind of be associated with and now they're convinced that this could possibly be some kind of weird cult or something. I mean, if it's a cult, the barbecue and the whiskey is pretty good. So I think people should come back. But they, they have these preconceived notions because society and culture, we, we subjected ourselves to the Barbie movie last night. It is the most horrendous piece of trash. Sorry, it was terrible. It's the most horrendous piece of trash that I've ever seen. And it has a cultural, but, but, but here's the thing. It's got this cultural, it's got this cultural hook because that's what people believe. That's what they believe that men who want to lead are like. And that they're, they're holding these women back and they're holding these. That's not the Proverbs 31 woman. That's not the woman that's building the enterprise because we've lost the value of the connection between the household and the economy. Your home is an economy. Even if you have to leave the home to go work, why are you working? What are you doing it for? And who are you a slave to? And at what point, if you are working for somebody else, are you willing to say, no, this doesn't support my family. This doesn't support what I am called to do to, as a leader and a man and this doesn't matter whether you're single or whether you have children. And it doesn't matter if you haven't started it yet. Our kids have been through an incredible journey with us as we've gone down this path of, of following the Lord, right? Because we're doing stuff now differently than we did eight years ago, seven years ago as a family. Doug, and I think it's in Reforming Marriage, talks about the aroma of your home. So you know, like when you walk into a business or you walk into a church, or you, you, you can tell, like, is it tense? Is it welcoming? Is it kind? What your job as men in the household is to build a home that can have a pleasant aroma. And you do that by leading well. Kristen said something to me years ago that made me really mad. And she said, your attitude sets the tone for the house. And I was like, no, you're the woman, like you're the thing. And you're like, the thing. And she said, no, if, if you, if you're like frustrated about something outside of home, like, cause I would come in the house on the phone. Bark, 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 grumble, 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 grumble. I hang up the phone. Like, then I put the phone down, and my kids are coming to engage me. I'm, where's my, where's my headspace? I'm still grumbling, right? And so, what do you think that did to set the tone for the evening as dad came home after the end of his long day? It wasn't great. She said, You set the tone for our home. People are excited dad's going to come home. When you come in the door and you're frustrated about work, you're frustrated about this or whatever, that changes the tone of the home. And I started to realize, wait, there's responsibility here. And it's clear in the Bible. And so for us, the journey that we took was by learning and studying and worshiping as a family. Family worship matters. I wish I could tell you that we do it every single night. We don't. We try. Our home, like Matt's home, is a revolving door of human beings because we want people to taste and see that the Lord is good inside our home. If, especially we as pastors, if we say that, that we believe that the way we are living our lives out joyously, not in loser theology, but we are conquerors, we are, we are victorious, we are building for a thousand generations, we are leaving, leaving generational wisdom and wealth to those that come after us, then people should be able to taste and see that in our homes. They should be able to see that in the way that you apologize, the way that you forgive, the way that you give grace, the way that you deal with a mess. Right? Our homes aren't supposed to be like these sanitized, polished, oh my gosh, everyone's coming over, make it look really pretty. 
Real life happens. We have five kids. Like stuff, we have a small house. Stuff everywhere. So your home becomes a place where other people can experience Jesus Christ. But I think one of the challenges, if you haven't walked this path your whole life and you have family members or friends, all of a sudden as you start to do this, they start pushing back. You're not qualified to educate your children. You're going to work for yourself. What about your retirement? What happens if uh, you, you can't do the job you're doing anymore? How are you going to pay your bills? What about health insurance? I was more terrified of health insurance and not having it than anything else. Right? Because I lived this lie that you need, the security is in what I do, not who I serve. And see, what I can tell you is in the last four years of being fully self-employed, so in the pastorate, and then I, I contract teach at an online classical Christian school, which I kind of fell into by the grace of God because my kids went there and it was really incredible and they needed teachers. In, in finding really creative ways to be able to, how do, you, how do you pay for things out of pocket? Did you know you can get x-rays in Denver for $25 read by a radiologist? Simon Med Imaging, if you go pay cash for an x-ray, they're $25. If you took their insurance card there, they'd probably bill you four grand to your insurance company. I had a hernia, I an ultrasound for MI. We, we have a private pay physician's office that we use, a primary care doc, they don't take any insurance. If you want the most magical healthcare you can get, you remove the insurance companies. Because I see a doctor now that is no longer motivated by billable hours. I pay him the same amount of money every single month. We didn't even know these things existed because I lived in so much fear because the culture said, you can't do this. You have to be reliant on all of these other people and they're going to take care of us. You, you can't educate your kids. You don't even have a teaching license. So you better send them off to the public prisons, schools, schools. I'm sorry, they're not prisons. They, you, you can't come and leave when you want. They provide you meals. There's disciplinary actions, prison schools. Never mind. It's hard to, it gets confusing. How are they ever going to get socialized? They're going to turn into homeschool weirdos. Well, I'd rather them be our kind of weirdos than the culture, right? But it's easy to buy into the lie. So one of the things I want to encourage you with is to take the leap to live all of Christ for all of life can be a little bit intimidating and can be a little bit scary because you may have people in your life that are going to push back and say, you shouldn't do this. You can't do this. But if you want to think of it just financially and economically, did you know if you, if you can find a way to make $2,000 a week, that's $104,000 a year. If you can find a way to make $3,000 a week, it's $156,000 a year. There are all kinds of creative ways to build economies, to make money, to provide for your family that don't involve you having to be a slave, selling your time to somebody else so you can ask for a day off to take time with your family. Well, excuse me, Mr. Boss. Huh? I have this really important thing at home. No. I quit. The last church I worked at, not very long, first was because I said we should throw a party after row. Bruce Wade got overturned and he said, that's divisive. And I said, killing babies is divisive. That's, that's, so I knew I might not be a great fit there. <laughs> we had a guy working for a, a, a very liberal higher education institute that, that doesn't share any of our values as Christians. And I said, we need to tell him to quit. And the other pastor said, you can't tell him that. I said, wow, what is he going to do? See, the challenge, I think, cultural is we can get bought into this idea that if we don't, then. But that's not trusting the Lord. So, so we, we are to be tent makers. God gave you, Matt highlighted this really well. You all have different gifts. 
and different skills and different blessings that the Lord ha- has given each one of you. I think this is like the, the hilarity of the weird microaggressions. Like we need to be, I don't call it DEI, I call it die diversity, inclusion, and equity because it eventually eats itself. But the, 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 uh, the irony about die is like, we want this hyper like diverse world. This is the diverse world. You're different than him and you're different than him and he's different than you. You are all individual, unique creature, cre- creatures, it's bored. creatures created by God. And when you get with the same foundation, which is that God's word is authoritative, that authority structures exist on purpose, that you as men have incredible responsibility and people are watching they're watching how you lead. They're watching how you respond. And, and then when you can share this foundation with a family through worshiping the Lord well together, you become this unstoppable force. You build a home with an aroma that, that is, that is rich. And I think the thing, like you, you, Matt said something about his kids going out and planting. So they're, they're literally on skid row, right? They, they're in a difficult part of Denver. They're loving on people. I'm sure they're all donating a lot of money to you while they're, cause that's why you guys are doing it. It's ridiculous. But his kids are going out there loving on those people too because the children have ownership. When we went to Austria to bury my father-in-law, we went to Stefan's Dome, which is this beautiful cathedral. And it's in the middle of Vienna. And it took them 400 years to build the cathedral. And it was built by families who volunteered to do it. So they went about their household economies through the day. And at the end of the day, they packed the lunch and they walked and they did brick masonry and built a cathedral that many of those families never, ever worshipped the Lord in. And why did they do that? Because the families had ownership for a thousand generations so that those generations would go and worship the Lord. I have lived in both ends of the world. I, I, have, I have lived as a man who did not know Jesus, who was dead in his sin, and, and, and alive in the cultural everything. And I have now lived as a reborn man dead to my sin and alive in Jesus Christ, following this path of righteousness, living all of Christ for all of life, and is literally the best time I have ever had. I made a comment the other day in my men's group, and like I, a dude sunk in the chair, and I felt really bad. But I said, as Christians, as Christians, we should be the most joyful people in the world. Your households are supposed to reflect the joy of the Lord as our strength. You should be eating the best food. You should be drinking the best drink. You should be having the best sex. And that's when that dude slid right into his chair. He really did. Because you're doing it for the glory of God. And you're raising your children up for the glory of God. And, and your neighbors watch this. People are paying attention to you. God's always paying attention to you. And you're, but, but people are paying attention to you and your impact on the kingdom because we are kingdom builders, right? We are, we are men who are called out to use our hands and go out and build. But we can only do that if we trust in the Lord. I had to find the verse again. I couldn't remember if it was three or five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's the beautiful part about building these households is you don't have to worry about how to do it. God has laid out exactly how you have to do it. Sometimes you might not like what it says or your wife may not like what it says, but that's where it comes for you to lead well. At the very end of Ephesians, one of the things, um, I don't know if I can find it quick because I want to be respectful of everybody's time, but I was thinking about it as I was reading the verse. Here, let's see if I can find it. Um, no partiality in heaven. That was one I was thinking about. No, but it was about children. There it is. Fathers, you need to think about this. Because not only do you have to lead well for your house, have a good aroma for your wife and for your children, 
all the time, right? When other, I'm sorry, when other people are there, because that's easy to do, right? People come in your house and say, oh, hey, put our happy faces on. But it says here in 6, four fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's your actual charge in all of these places is how you lead your wife, how you lead your children, how you lead loving your neighbor through crisis. My next door neighbor puts up a murder satanic scene for Halloween. I mean, it's crazy. This year, they moved it closer and closer to our driveway. They've got this like metal bed. Hunter was there. They got this metal like like hospital table and there's guts pouring out of it. And he plays death metal with speakers as loud as he can and points them at my house. So this year, we set up a church sign, a light, and Brian Sauvé and pointed the music at his house. And we handed out 200 glasses of hot chocolate. We ran out. I wish we would have 400. We probably talked to 300 people. We talked to them about the love of Jesus Christ through our actions and allowed them to experience the aroma of our home by seeing what it looks like to live as Christians. We weren't hiding in the basement, right? We were going out there and living all of Christ for all of life. Um, so I want to leave you with this because sometimes this can feel a little bit overwhelming. Part of what we are going to be doing at Christ Church moving into 2024 is we started a nonprofit called Center for the Biblical Family. And Center for the Biblical Family's goal is to equip families on how to live the Christian life functionally. Not, not just, not just uh, talking to us about, uh, about Scripture, which is really important. Don't, don't think that I mean not just. But how to actually take action on that. Because you have to be men of action. And so we want to help equip families on whatever their stage of life is through part of our journey to show you that you can do this. And your, your, your children the richness of your children. The best blessing for me in teaching them at classical school is to be surrounded by kids who are smart and engaged and they want to fight the culture war. That's incredible. There's hope in the next generation, but we are there to go build that. We're not, that's why we don't subscribe to this loser theology. Oh, the engineer, maybe I'll get teleported today. It's ridiculous. Go out and put some flowers, you know, on Skid Row. Make the aroma of your home good. But the challenge, and my friend Craig who came tonight was asking me about this, I think the challenge for many men is like, well, how do I do this? What's the path? Because we as men are planners. I want to know step one, step two, step three, step nine. Sometimes God doesn't reveal that to us other than what he reveals in his word about faithfulness. So go and build and be faithful and be like Abraham. Go to the land to God that God will show you, but trust that he will show you that land because he will. And my family's living proof of it. We... we I really enjoyed, I spent about 20 years traveling, about 50% of the year. And there was a period of my life where I didn't like coming home. Like a long period of my life where I used to daydream about like what life would be like if it was different. Since being a Christian and since living the faithful Christian life, like I'm looking at this now going, man, I'm like ready to go home, have another glass of whiskey, chase Kristen around a little bit, giggle, maybe lose another game of cards like I usually do, and then go to bed. Because life is really joyous. God has given you abundantly and the household is a microcosm of the temple. It is a way for people to experience God's kingdom. So my encouragement for you is, as you think about these things, as you chew about these things, as you think about where your family is, is go to the land which God will show you. Do it in trust and faithfulness and trust that you will receive the blessings of the Lord. They're gonna look differently than you think. I guarantee that. But they're gonna be so much more abundant than you could have ever imagined. <laughs> um, just a little bit of Q&A. Uh, we, we get a lot of crap. Parent, kids, you shouldn't say that at home. Because um, of our associations with Moscow. I'm just sitting up here. Uh, and 
I, I, anybody that gives me trash about Moscow, I say, hey, just come with us at some point. Um, I, I, I got to hang out with Jared Longshore a couple months ago and, and his wife from their home and, and just because they just moved up there a year before. And, uh, and one of the, one of the, I was just asking, hey, what were the cultural shifts? You came from big mega church Baptist world to Moscow, Idaho, and all that that means. And, uh, what was the biggest shift? And so they told a couple stories. Um, they said, one, we noticed everyone here is happy. <laughs> and two, I've never been in a place that works harder in my life. To the point that they, you know, he does pastor, he's pastor there, he does pastoral counseling, all kinds of meetings. And he also spent his first year at Moscow, his job was, they had all these families moving to Moscow, be a part of it. And, um, and they, everybody show up and say, hey, what do we do? We're here now. And, uh, and, and he said, the, the elders have told him, like, tell all these new families, like, what you can do is like, you need to work really hard at your job. You need to really love your wife and you're going to really love your kids. Like that's, that's what you need to do. Um, and his wife started laughing. She said, yeah, like a question that was asked all the time at her old church and her old community was, well, how do you feel? Like, how, how are you doing? Like, what's, how do you feel right now? And she said, here, no one asks how you feel. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I said, what would happen if you asked? And they said, what are you talking about? There's so much work to do. We, got, we have work, to, we have kids to raise. We have, we have a dinner to cook. We have people coming over tonight. We have, we have a life to be lived in, in the Lord. It's good and glorious. And, and we just, we're not going to sit down, sit down and do hours and hours of self reflection on how we feel right now. Like, God is good. He's given us good work to do. Let's do the work and get at it. Um, and, uh, so I, I, yeah, I would just commend all of you. Like one of the things that we've prayed for here is that we wake up at one level and see that there's an enormous amount of work to be done that God's put in front of you. Um, and he hasn't spelled out online steps. I thought this is Craig was talking about the nine steps. Like, the, the craziest thing is like when Adam and Eve show up in the garden, God didn't say, okay, step one, you're going to establish a rose. You're going to plant some seeds and then you're going to do this thing. So it's going to be a vine. So you need a line and then, and, and give them step by step on how to build civilization. He put them smack dab in the middle of endless resources, as Matt had said, and said, get to work. Like, and and my prayer for our church and for our city and for this group of churches that are now working together is that we'd have a community of people that are looking around going like, we're surrounded by endless resources and God has told us to get to work and he's gracious and he's good and he's told us principles to live by and things we should be instilling in our kids and the framework for that should shape our marriage and our life as husbands and people working in the world and He's left us without, here's the line that you should put up, and here's the brick that you should put here, and here's the thing you should put, he said, here's, here's a city that's a mess. Actually, we've taken the garden, and now we've turned it all up. Um, so double challenge. Get to work. Get to work in joy. Get to work in grace, because it's 
all of this endless resources is filled. Yeah, there's pain. Yes, there's loss. There's death. There's sin. And there's wine. And there's whiskey. And there's sex. And there's kids giggling in the morning, sometimes too early, but giggling in the morning. And it was just like endless goodness surrounding us that God's filled this world with. And he's told us, okay, here's how you navigate all that sin stuff and the death stuff and the, the foolishness of your 16-year-old, which is way harder than the foolishness of your 4-year-old. Um, and do these things and get to work. Get to work with joy. Um, and uh, my prayer is that in the midst of our city, what our churches would smell like is uh, a people committed to the work of, of cultivating the garden, filled with joy because we've been adopted by a God who loves us and has forgiven us of our sins um, and are now inviting people into the joy of knowing God, being reconciled to God, and uh, drinking good wine and eating good pork made by a friend of mine. Um, so do you guys have questions for them? Uh, anything you guys want to talk about before we wrap up? We're a little lower than that. Yeah. And the thing that just really kind of rocks my knees and like probably bored me is that kind of basically said was like, if you, you know, want, you want to have a better relationship with your wife, why are you even better? You want your kids to respect you, you know, so they wouldn't say, you first of all have to take responsibility for your role. And then you, you don't go to them and not talk to them, you go to God. And then ask for forgiveness, and you ask for him to help you be that man that you want to be. Mm-hmm. And that's it's an incredibly humbling thing. Like it sounds weird because we as men like want to just suck up and do it. But many times we don't have the capability to do it. We don't, you know, we, we have so many things, so many baggage that we come with, um, and then we make excuses for everything that we do, you know. So actually humbling yourself before God, taking responsibility for not leaving your home, and then asking him to help you leave your home is one of the biggest things that you can do to start off with. Yeah. Yeah. That book that Chad just mentioned, come to my house. You're not signed up and unless there's no more to remember, which is great. No lights on fire or whatever. The most of the year he's very restraining. He says, no matter how that's loose. But they get and he gives one or two books away for free every week in November. And this week's book is the Covenant Household. Yeah. So you can go on Canada's website, go over to the government.com, you can download it for free. You don't have a Kindle, there's like an e app, there's a phone app. It's a, it's a short read, it's like long shows book. It's quick, it's right to the motion to the you should all read it, especially after. Yeah. It's really good for you single guys. <laughs> so I saw them to be honest, you know who you are. Uh, and especially like Elon Rambly, so I follow most of them. What did you say, Rambly? Yeah, I do love Rambly. So. <laughs> Sorry. So it's fun. Uh, talking about you know, singleness and going back to Brian's thoughts earlier about feminism, there's obviously an issue, right, where like the household is a place of comfort and not a place of productivity. And we sort of moved away from that. I think in a lot of ways we think it just interesting for women to get engaged in the process of moving toward marriage. At the same time, I do notice that a lot of women are much more present in that conversation than men. 
the lack there is that a lot of men don't know how to prevent themselves from being a good person to help create the household. And so there's almost like this image issue where you're like, myself, brother, right at my age, we just ask Christian men, we have a hard time presenting ourselves <laughs> as someone who could build a household for the Lord. And like her intuition or whatever, her inner desire from God is to go build that household. As a man who's living that current issue, how do you do that? How do you do that as like a good uh, provider, as a good godly man, as someone who's interesting and able to provide the cure for them? Yeah. Don't pursue sex. <laughs> Which is a funny thing. Like, I, it, you know, like there's so many. I think I'm going to ask Matt because he's the hottest of all of us that spoke tonight. Um, <laughs> but I'm giving you a warm up right here. Uh, so, so I, I, one of the things that's interesting as I'm talking to single guys about phys- their physical relationships, interestingly enough, is one of the things I talk about is like, hey, the, the physical relationship isn't just about some weird purity law and you need to check the box of not having violated certain sexual norms that are established in the Bible. It's like, it shows that you're, you're self-restrained. It shows the self-control. It shows that you're, that you're interested in her as a person. It also shows that like, you're responsible. Like, it, like there's like, um, C.S. Lewis, Lewis, one of the things said about C.S. Lewis is everything he believed about, everything he believed about every, anything was contained in what he said about anything. Um, and I think that's actually a truism that carries over into all of life. Uh, what he believed about everything um, was true, and then he said anything he said about anything. So I think that's actually how it was said. And and the the idea is that what you believe. Um, this is actually a truism I learned in Moscow. Um, you can say whatever you want about what you believe about marriage and the home and the family and sex and all those kind of things. And you can say whatever you want to say about what you believe about God. What you actually believe is how you live. Like it's actually what comes out of your fingertips. Um, and in the case of sexual purity, it literally comes out of your fingertips. Um, like in terms of, because that's connected to self-control, that's connected to discipline, which is going to be connected to wealth, which is going to be connected to worship the Lord is going to be connected to how you approach everything in life. Um, like a lack of self-control in that area or any area actually demonstrates a lack of self-control in other areas. Um, and uh, so I'll start with like the person you're pursuing needs to know what you're pursuing and what you're not pursuing. Um, and that needs to be really clear pretty quick. Um, I told Jenny, literally our first conversation. I was a little bit overzealous. I was, you know, I was young, but, um, quite told her right up the bat, like, I'm looking for a wife, but we're going to do this. You're willing to be poor. She's willing to do this, pursue this. I'm going to be in ministry. And I'm going to like, you know, and, um, and, uh, right off the bat, and my, I think our second date, I asked her if she was a Calvinist. Um, so, <laughs> cause that was, that was a deal killer for me. You know, I, I still remember, I told you the other day, I remember he answered, she said, I don't remember how I answered it. I said, he said, uh, I mean, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think like, at least being up front, probably more um, savvy than I was, 
in saying like, hey, this is what I think marriage is. This is what I think marriage is for. This is what I'm trying to pursue. Um, here's what I'm doing right now to pursue it. Um, are you interested in that? <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know what Matt would say. He's hot. He has probably the easier way. Well, what else? Well, technically, you know, be who you are. Okay. So, um, I'll say this in two angles. One, what's going to get in the area you want to go about later? Why? Two, how are you going to do a body? You know, you're not guarding that. Speaking me of like all those new combat, I said, think that she's really bad. And I saw her go to my table. It's like, like look, what they're, look what they're doing. They're not pursuing guys. I don't know. Um, they're not educated or they're not education. They just sound like a So, I, I would, I would worry about, like, my college name was more like, oh, I'd like to make her, what person do I need to sketch hmm. okay, that person versus, like, yeah. I'll just say it's like, we met. <laughs> My wife and I found she was a billion dollars in real estate before we met. Um, she took me to your dad's house in the old mansion, and I broke up with her and just said, like, I can't write this down. Like, so she said, good. But I said, what's the baby? I said, no, everything you said to me for me. And then finally, by the way, I'm sorry, this is great. Like, I know what you do for a living. You know what? How are you going to buy? We have this is like 13 years ago. Like, 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 proceed to ask him for the You'll protect a dog like you have, because you'll be the only guy who's going to have a job. I'm not kidding. Who's not, 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 let Justin throw in for ask what it was he's gonna be. Um is I I'd heard early on like, hey, like you pursue God, pursue faithfulness, work your butt off and run. And um like if you ever turn and start focusing on how do I become the kind of man that this I, I think one bit of advice I've heard before is, hey, become the kind of man that the kind of woman you want to marry would want to marry. I think there's wisdom in that. I also think there's the potential to say, my goal is to get married. So how do I put off the airs necessary for this woman to like me? Rather than going like, no, you serve Christ. You serve Christ and trust him and um, work your butt off and love the Lord. And, uh, and, I mean, pay attention, <laughs> where the women are, <laughs> but you, you, you don't, you don't 
I think the moment you make it your goal to pursue a woman in order to get married, your your attention is in the wrong spot. Like God's given you right now what's in front of you. Be faithful of what's in front of you and go. Justin. There's two things that I would add with all of this. One is like your that woman's gonna learn how well you meet in your physical relationship. Right? So what Brian's talking about with your like the, the amount of discipline you can apply in that relationship, particularly in the physical side of it, is gonna demonstrate to her that she can trust you and that you can actually be to that in a in a thing that's really can be difficult to do you right. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is uh, it's the what Brian said about the accuracy from Moscow of all the people moving to Moscow. Hey, we're here now. How do we jump in? What do we do? And the response from like the Christian folks like ring, find a job, like bring your kids, like do Bible and do it excellently. Uh, do it with excellence. And so um, I think that's the kind of thing, like the kind of woman that you're going to want to marry is not uh, is not a woman that wants to be put up in an art. Right? She actually wants to. And so you demonstrate that you can lead by being able to manage your own affairs and do that with skill. Yeah. What's up, man? And I would say also where, where you're spending your time. If uh, you see a man doing that a lot, like many of the four that have previously spoken, spend time with that vastly on mentor. Watch men who are doing it well and mirror that. In your singleness, the way they are in, in being man and married, and uh, you will learn those skills, you'll see what's important, you'll see the priorities, you'll see what they're focusing on, and that will strengthen you. I mean, that's the beauty of a, of a church community. And it's the older men teaching the younger, the older women, as opposed to society groups that's all by age. <laughs> so if you spend all your time with with aimless, confused, single men, you're just gonna keep chasing your tail. But you find men, the guys put in your life, and you see the way they're leading, you see the way they're doing well, and follow not the, the example that God has, has uh, established in their lives for you as a good thing to pursue as well. Yeah. I'll say one of the things that came up uh, first week at NSA. Um, they do a lot on they do a lot of talks on dating, and uh, and my daughter called me one afternoon and and uh, it's like oh you believe so Ben Merkel is the president there is Doug's son-in-law and uh, um, and uh, one of the one of the one of the I don't remember if it was a guy or a girl. It asked, like, well, what kind of, what should we be looking for in, it was that guy asked, what should we look for in a wife? Like, what's, what's the keys? You know, um, should we just look for, like, why does education matter? The whole thrust of it ended with, well, why does college education matter for a girl or whatever? And, uh, and he said, uh, he said, I, I've, I would tell all of you the same thing. Like you need to have something that you're passionate about serving the Lord with and pursuing um, things that you're excited about doing. He told his daughter's own story of like, well, she graduated from college, didn't have any suitors. And she was passionate about cook, wanted to open a restaurant or wanted to be a good cook, 
like an amazing uh, chef. And so she moved to France to do some crazy uh, chef school. I don't know what it's called. There's probably a formal French name for it. Culinary arts. It's some French thing. Some sort of French thing. Um, and, uh, and he said, you want to find a woman who is interesting, impassioned, has gifts, is pursuing those gifts, and is willing to set aside her end goals in order to like turn towards you and, and is willing to hold those things in open hand and pursue a marriage. And, and I would say the same thing for like single dudes in, in one sense of, um, cause everything has to get renegotiated when you get married. Like, here's how this is going to look. And cause now God's, whether you realize it or not in a marriage is multiplying your gifts. And, and, um, so you should be able to do more, <laughs> um, maybe not more, more in the world's eyes, but more in, in terms of how God's like thinking out of scripture. I would say this to any single woman or any single man in our church, like pursue passionately with all the energy you have serving the Lord with faithfulness, doing the jobs, doing the work that God's given you, be as creative as you can, make as much money as you can, and be willing to sacrifice anything in there in order to be married and form a household, and then see how God transforms and uses those gifts when they're multiplied by another person um, to serve the Lord. Uh, so I would say Go hard after all, all, all the gifts God's given you, which He's given you a lot, brother. So, cool. Yeah, you got the only question of the night. This is what we want. We're gonna be done right now. May not serve the Lord, pursue His ends. And recognize that if the Lord gives you a wife, you sound generally the Lord, but you find a wife that they are good to him. But you have to not rest upon Yeah. And in the sinful world, and the sinful gender, there's three churches that are not here. I got a couple more that aren't here, but you know. I see the last all right, dude, we're after nine. We'll hang out. If I could ask you to do one thing before we wrap, before you leave, take all your trash and put it in the trash can. Um, if we could stack all the music sheets, if you don't, unless you want to take it home and sing with your kids, it should be great. That song on the law of God, I don't like love the tune, but in terms of the theology of what the law of God is, and it's amazing. Um, get the entire Westminster Confession there in one song. I can put those on this, sh- on this table. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray for us, and then we'll sing the doxology as thanksgiving to God for tonight. Um, thank God, Craig, for sharing with us. Um, next one of these we'll do will be in late January. Um, and, uh, we haven't picked a topic yet, but we will, and it'll be awesome. Um, we pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for, uh, Grace City Church and Christ Church, Lord, many blessed and richly. That people who don't know you would come there and find Christ and be awakened from their sin and death, uh, to know you. 
Um, we pray for these two pastors and their families, that they would flourish, that they know joy, that they would know what it is to serve you faithfully, um, and you bless their congregations, um, fill them with people, fill all of our churches, people, um, being disciples to follow Jesus, and God may, um, our churches be the aroma of the goodness of God, and the grace of God, and the glory of God, and the fruitfulness of God, um, in, in our city, uh, that our city would be, um, uh, no longer in rebellion against you, but increasingly 